An Air Midwest Beechcraft 1900D crashes into a hangar right after takeoff. What caused this flight to go dramatically wrong so quickly? Welcome back to the Hard Landings Podcast, everybody. I'm Nick. I'm Miranda. And I'm Christy. And it's just us today. Hey! It's been a while wow. since we haven't had anybody. <laughs> I know, it really has, actually. We were like, you know what? It's it's time to just have the three of us on here. Yeah, it is. And it's... we're recording later in the week because my birthday was on Sunday. Yeah. So... Plus and my... Brendan's. Yeah. Yeah. Plus my dad was in town and all that jazz. So Logistics. It's like... Yeah, so we ended up spending the weekend actually just having a weekend and kind of i was cleaning well okay yeah <laughs> but still we we took some time and we decided to record this during the week which is fine yeah we all have the time hey guys guess what what i got my job back Woo! i'm employed again guys full-time employed again and actually more than full-time employed now thank god because you've got your part you got your part-time job too also thanks for continuing to listen Thank you to all the new patrons. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks to Rick and uh, Kevin. Yeah, we just got... Rich. Rich. Why did I say Rick? I I don't know. know. Sorry, Rich. Rich and Kevin, they joined this past week. Yeah. Kevin joined today. Yesterday. Yesterday? After our episode came out yesterday. As far as I... Well, that's when... No, I got the email this morning. Oh, I got the email this morning. Yeah. Then it was probably today. Yeah, it was today. But thank you to both of you for being patrons and supporting us. Yeah. And remember, you get extra content. I don't And you guys have already suggested stuff. Yeah. And like uh, we've said before, but if you didn't know, if you're a $10 patron and you request a recommendation, other recommendations get bumped. So sorry to those of you who have gotten bumped. That has actually been happening. We've been bumping quite a few episodes because our patrons are definitely recommending things. A lot of things. A lot of things. And so we're having to move other stuff around for them. And we actually, we like that. And uh, also on that note, we are full until the beginning of 2021 next year already. Yeah. With uh, mostly rec- recommendations, recommendations basically, yeah, it's almost entirely recommendations. We are loving the fact that our schedule can be built on recommendations. It's how we want this to be. We want it to be audience driven. Yeah, that's way more fun for us because then it feels like we're actually interacting with you guys and we have your attention and we like that you guys like what we're doing and our content is actually worth something. Of course, this happened after I made like a super cool randomizer for when we ran out. That's yeah, but that's never going to happen because now we just... I can use it for the Miranda Sotes. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Every once in a while, we might be able to use it too because there's there's things that change and things come up. And, and some of these, like to break the monotony, sometimes we have to insert something different. Yeah. So... On that note also, uh, this one was recommended by... Mike. Mike Setzer. Up? Mike Setzer. A patron. One of our patrons. Thank you, Mike. You've also done a bunch of recommending before, so. And I, this is an episode I've wanted to do since before we started the podcast. This was, there was like a list of 10 of them that I've wanted to do. Like when I had the idea for the podcast, I was like, oh, like I had like 10 of them on my mind. I was like, we got to do this one, this one, this one, and this one. This was one of them. So thank you for recommending it. Because now it's on our schedule. We get to do it today. Yeah. That being said, what are we covering today, Nick? Today, we are covering Air Midwest, or U.S. Airways, Flight 5481. U.S. Airways Express. Yeah, U.S. Airways Express. So, wait, wait, wait. Is it like a Colgan Air type thing where yeah. they rent out 
planes to not a really, company? Not really rent out, but it's... Uh, it's they're... the regional line. So just like we flew SkyWest to Aspen, but it was United Express. Yeah. Okay. So a lot of those airlines contract for what's known as code sharing, and then they basically make an agreement to run under the brand of the airline, the, the major airline, but they operate the commuter type airline. So the, the shorter flights with much fewer passengers. So it's the regional company yep. that it works for US Air. Yep. Air Midwest is required to operate completely as their own airline in terms of maintenance, pilots, operations. They hire all their own people apart from US Airways. They just have the contract to fly US Airways passengers under their brand, basically. And it's the same thing for Colgan Air. Yep. Yeah, if, if you need a refresher on any of that, you can go back to episode four. Or if you're just now listening and you don't know what we're talking about, you can go back to episode four. We talk about Colgan Air. So. Also, good reference episode for this episode. If you're just like catching up to us now, episode 10, go back and listen to it. Some of that might be useful in this episode. I don't remember what happened. That's good. <laughs> well, good. <laughs> I probably got really mad. That's a long time for us. For those that are those of you that are binging in the future, then that probably doesn't feel like very long ago. But maybe it does. I don't know. I mean, it was like more than 30 weeks ago. Yeah. For us. Yeah. So more than half a year. Uh, yeah, more than half a year. Yeah. So. Anyways. Continue. So this happened on January 8th of 2003. So relatively recent-ish. Ish. This was a Raytheon Beechcraft... 1900D. Fancy. So, yeah, that's a really formal way of calling it. Uh, most people know it as the Beach 1900D. And it had a tail number of November 23 Yankee Victor. The captain for this flight was to be Catherine Leslie. She was 25 years old. A.K.A. Katie. Yep. She was the youngest captain flying with the airline. She had 1,865 hours total, of which 1,100 hours were as pilot in command on the 1900D. So, so majority of her hours were on... The, the Beechcraft. And because this was before Colgan Air, they also didn't have the 1,500-hour requirement. Ah, yes, you are right. So that means she joins the airline at about 700 hours, 750 hours. Also, so. good for her for being captain and good for her for being so young. Yeah. I have to say. Yep. The first officer was Jonathan Gibbs. He was 27 years old, so only two years older. And his logbook must have been lost because all it says is, Prior to his, well, on his application for for the airline, he had 390 hours prior to starting. And then with the airline, he accrued 706 hours in the Beach 1900. The flight was to be from Charlotte to Greenville-Spartanburg International in South Carolina. Yes, I always thought Spartanburg was a really cool name for a town. That is a really cool name for a town. Anyway, so it's not a very long flight. It's from North Carolina to South Carolina. Probably what? Similar to what we would do going from here to mm, like Utah? Yeah, to like Salt Lake City. It's probably yeah. similar in time. Like an hour-ish? Yeah. A little bit less than an hour? Yeah, probably. This was to be a full flight with 19 passengers. Yes, 19 whole passengers. It's a small airplane. It's a twin turboprop. If you know what a King Air is, which is a, usually a private airplane or chartered airplane, then this is basically just a slightly larger version of a King Air. They actually had very, very similar cockpits. Similar engines, basically. The whole thing was based on the same airframe, basically. Just a little bit larger. Plus the two crew. But our story will begin on January 7th, the day before. The airplane had been picked up by a different crew from Huntington, West Virginia, from a heavy maintenance check, and then flown to Charlotte. 
The accident crew then flew the airplane on six different legs that day before returning to Charlotte. Holy cow. Yep. It's a lot. Yeah, their their six legs were all very short because they didn't even start until one in the afternoon and they were done by, I don't remember what it was, like eight o'clock. Oh, so they were like pretty close to... They were hopping. All of them were really, really short hops. The airplane was then flown by another crew from Charlotte to Lynchburg, Virginia that night where the airplane stayed overnight and then it returned to Charlotte early the next morning on the 8th by that same crew that kept it overnight. The accident crew then took the airplane first thing in the morning and were scheduled to fly the plane on two legs, one from Charlotte to the Greensville-Spartanburg and then on to Raleigh-Durham International and then they were to travel as on-duty crew as passengers back to Charlotte. This flight crew arrived that morning in the gate area between 7.45 and 8 a.m. The aircraft allowed for 32 bags max to be loaded and 19 passengers. A ground crew member loaded 23 bags and a further eight were carried onto the plane. I'm trying to do math. 31. Thank you. (laughs) I was like, wait, my brain can't do math that fast. So basically there were one short of their max bags. Their max baggage capacity. Yep. Did the pilots have bags? Uh, I'm sure they had their little flight bags or whatever. Oh, well, then it probably didn't count. Did it count toward the 32? Well, the thing is, I think the crew was based in Charlotte anyways, so they probably didn't carry much with them. Ah. Because you think about it, they didn't need to have overnight bags. They were going back to Charlotte after two legs. So midday, they were probably going back home. Mm, True life. Mm -hmm. The passengers boarded while the crew completed all their paperwork, including the flight plan, weather, weight and balance, and maintenance checks. The flight left the gate on time at around 8.30 a.m. The captain was to be the pilot flying, and the first officer was to be the pilot not flying, or the pilot monitoring. At 8.35 a.m. and 16 seconds, the flight crew performed a flight control check to full range of motion for the flight controls. At 8.37 a.m. and 20 seconds, the first officer contacted the ground controller at Charlotte to inform him that they were ready to taxi for takeoff on runway 18 right. They were subsequently given the instructions to taxi to the runway, and they did so. At 8.46 a.m. and 18 seconds, the tower controller cleared the flight for takeoff and instructed the crew to turn right to a heading of 230 after takeoff. At 8.46 a.m. and 35 seconds, so only about what was that, 15 seconds, not even 13 seconds later, the captain asked the first officer to set takeoff thrust. The first officer then stated power set after increasing the thrust levers. 13 seconds after that, the airplane's airspeed was above 102 knots, and three seconds later, the pitch was increased on the flight controls, and the aircraft lifted from the runway. Seven seconds later, the captain called for the gear up, and the first officer did so. At 8.47 and two seconds, the first officer stated, whoa, and the captain said, oh, all at the same time. Oh, that's not good. A second later, the captain stated, help me. Uh-oh. Yeah. This is all within about 12 seconds of gear up. Oh, I almost said a bad word. Shoot. (laughs) (laughs) The airplane was about 90 feet above ground level, moving 139 knots, when the airplane suddenly pitched up to 20 degrees nose up. So it pitched up suddenly. Yes. So too much. Yes. Was that stalling? Not yet. Okay. At 8.47 a.m. and four seconds, so two seconds later, the the captain asked, You got it? Wait, isn't she the one flying? Yes, but she had asked for help. Oh. Just a few seconds I earlier. guess that's true. The crew was pushing hard on the controls to get the nose back down. During the next eight seconds, the flight crew was struggling and fought with the controls, grunting and shouting. At 8.47 a.m. and nine seconds, 
the engine and the propeller noise changed significantly, and a second later, the stall warning horn sounded. Ha, wa, ha! <laughs> so then they were stalling. And then, and then it went bad. Yeah, so this was about five seconds later. And then at 8.47 a.m. and 13 seconds, so about another five seconds, well, another, what is it, four, four. seconds later, the aircraft reached a maximum nose-up angle of 54 degrees. Ooh. So within four seconds, they went from 20 degrees to 54 degrees. That's almost vertical. It's getting there. Three seconds later, the captain radioed the tower controller and stated, We have an emergency for Air Midwest 5481, at which point the stall warning stopped. Two seconds later, the aircraft pitched down rapidly through zero degrees, at which point the airplane was at about 1,150 feet above the ground. So they had gained a lot of altitude in a very, very short amount of time. The airplane rolled left rapidly to a maximum of 127 degrees, so inverted. Oh my god, this is like a roller coaster ride. I don't know what to think about this. Airspeed had dropped to only 31 knots. Oh no, (laughs) it's too slow. Yep. Too slow. And here's how crazy things got. Within one second of that, so remember, they were rolling through zero degrees. Within one second of that, the aircraft was 42 degrees pitched nose down, and the pilots were now pulling back heavily on the flight controls to bring the nose back up. So they were pushing them down... To try to get the nose down from their 54 degrees nose up. And then it switched. Within, yeah, within a few seconds, they went through zero, oh, down to 42 degrees, pitched down. And are right. almost upside down. And, and they're, they're almost upside down, rolled left. Now. And now they're trying to pull back, yep. Oh, man, I feel so sorry for them. Yeah, they're done. They must have no idea. They There must have been some point where they're like, this is it. There's Yeah. There, there's nothing we can do. You'll find out about when that is. Oh, good. <laughs> Two seconds later, the captain ordered the first officer... Pull the power back while the elevators were full nose pitch up and the airplane was at 39 degrees nose down. So in other words, they were pulling all the way back on the stick, making the elevators as full as full up as they can go, trying to bring the nose back up. But the airplane was still 39 degrees nose down. So they were slowly starting to bring the nose back up. Were they still inverted at this point? Or did they were it, did it say? beginning to roll back to the back right. To level. Back, back to level. Okay. Yep. Nearly simultaneously to that, to that, the stall warning horn began sounding again and continued for the remainder of the flight. Which makes sense, because they were going so slow. Yes. One second later, the airplane stabilized in a 20-degree left bank, with the nose beginning to pitch up, and the flight controls began to gradually be let back forward by the crew. About one second later, the elevator position began moving in the aircraft nose-up direction. About another second later, the airplane rolled right through wings level, and the pitch attitude increased to about 5 degrees nose down, so it was still nose down, but only a little bit. Two seconds later, the aircraft reached a max roll to the right of 68 degrees, so it rolled through to the right heavy, and a max vertical acceleration of 1.9 Gs, so almost 2 Gs. Oh, no. Which is quite a bit. Most people actually don't even experience 2 Gs, like, in an airplane, a car, or anything in their life. Yeah, 2 Gs is a lot. It's quite a bit. I have experienced For the human body. I think I have experienced like two and a half or three, and it's 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 heavy. Let me tell you. The only people I can think of that would be used to that is astronauts and uh, oh, and they are used Air to Force it. pilots. Yeah. They're way they're used to way more. Stunt pilots can get around three or four G's pretty easily. You're, when you're talking about fighter jets, their their bodies are trained to reach nine G's, which is the point at Awful. which. That is beyond the point that most humans pass out. Oh, yeah. They have special suits usually Getting to help them with that. Sick. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> anyway. Simultaneously, the captain said, 
Oh my god. Ah, uh, about the moment you realize that they realized they were screwed. <laughs> the first officer stated something similar with an expletive. I I don't blame him. Yeah. The aircraft crashed at 8:47 a.m. and 28.1 seconds when the aircraft was in a 47 degrees nose down position, rolled 66 degrees to the right, and the flight controls were rolled back to 19.2 degrees nose up, which meant that the elevators were in the full pitch up position. Possible. So let me let me recap for this, right? Mm-hmm. They take off, mm-hmm. and then their plane goes into a nose up, 20, 20, 20 degrees to 54 degrees, right? Yep. yep. So pretty high up. So they're trying to put the nose down. Eventually something happens, they roll. and they roll. They go down. They roll so, to the left. Right. They somehow make it semi-level with a little bit of pitch down, and they let go of the controls, and then it pitches right and down again. Right. And they're going so slow that they basically stall. And then they crash. So I can explain what happened at the top of that, because this is more of a physics problem. And this is something that pilots learn when they learn how to fly. And what's happening is when they get to that 54 degrees nose up, they were already moving pretty slow because they were still on their takeoff. And while they're on that 54 degrees nose up, now they're way past their normal attitude. And the airplane lost all its speed. And when you get to that point of stall, which obviously was at 31 knots then the airplane wants to pitch nose over to start picking speed back up, heading towards the ground, right? Well, airplanes have a tendency to, most airplanes have a tendency to fall left or right. Do you know why? Based on the propeller. Yes. This is called P-factor. And P-factor in an airplane, actually, on most propeller airplanes, brings the airplane to the left. And we compensate constantly on propeller airplanes to pull the airplane to the right. So hence... It's like if your car's not aligned. Yeah, exactly. It's right. like if the you car's just line. know to to keep adjust. it so, adjust so that you're going straight instead of, you know, running so, into people right. in the other lane. So then think about it this way. This airplane at 31 knots basically has no control. Yeah. They're, like any input they put in the flight controls isn't going to do much. So they're trying to counter whatever the airplane's doing, but they have no airspeed over any of the flight control surfaces, essentially. So they can't counter it. So the airplane's P factor actually pulls the airplane to the left. And it, that's what caused them to roll 127 degrees through inverted as they pitched nose over heavy. As the airplane began to pick up speed, they were able to bring it back toward wings level, but they did it too quickly. And so it, it over, they overcompensated, so they went to the right too much. Yep, so then the airplane carried to the right too much as it picked up speed. And that happened, I mean, literally within like three seconds. Which, when you're talking about an airplane rolling, you know, you're, you're trying to also fight pitch. You're trying to fitch, you're trying to you know, fight your vertigo, all the G-forces, and your visual perspective. It's just it that three seconds is nothing in the grand scheme of things. And we can talk about this a lot. I mean, saying it within the story, it sounds like it, it took a while. But this what? Oh. Total amount of time from Here. beginning to end took how many seconds? I can tell you. So the first time the first officer stated what was at 47 and two seconds, and they crashed at... 47 and 28 seconds. So literally 26 seconds they had from the moment that the airplane suddenly pitched up to, to the moment when they crashed. To the moment of impact. And all of that that we just talked about happening, them going pitch up and then rolling to the left and then going back to the right, all of that happened within 26 seconds. Yep, making radio calls and getting stall warnings and all those things happened within 26 seconds. Yeah, it's that's like impossible for me to comprehend on how to even figure out what was going on, it's, much less. Yeah, it's unbelievably fast. The aircraft crashed into a U.S. Airways maintenance hangar. Hmm. 
That's ironic. Yeah, it kind of is. <laughs> and it actually became a problem for firefighting crews because there's planes in that hangar. Ooh, planes no. with fuel. Oh, no. I mean, the airplane itself had a massive impact and explosion on a post-crash fire. It also took them a while to figure out that a plane had crashed into it because there's already planes. In it. Inside of it. Yep. So, so they didn't know if there was like, a plane inside of it. Yeah, exactly. Yep. So it, it took a minute. This airplane came to rest 1,650 feet east of the runway, which was 1-8 right. And, and so they were 1,650 feet east of the runway center line of 1-8 right. And they were about 7,600 feet beyond run, the runway 1-8 right threshold. Awesome. The tower controllers heard the emergency locator transmitter signal beginning at 8.47 and 29 seconds. So within a second of them crashing. The signal, this transmitter, so... We've never really talked about this before, but it's in most airplanes. Actually, all of them, including small airplanes. It's known as the ELT to most aviators. Uh, it's the emergency locator transmitter. And this literally, if it detects an impact or a crash, it is intended to send out a signal. Now, that signal is picked up by a lot of different organizations. Namely, it is tracked by the Air Force, the Did Defense we... Department talk about that with the air france 447 we talked a little bit about mostly like, what like we th they wanted there to be one so that they could figure out or something like that well mostly mostly what we talked about was the beacons on the data recorders the data recorders this is actually a totally separate device this is literally the emergency isn't locator it in the transmitter. cockpit nope these are most of the time are actually just hidden somewhere in the fuselage it really oh. depends on the airplane so they begin they're even yeah literally like in little single engine piston airplanes they're little orange boxes and when they go off, they emit a signal that can be heard by radio, but also they are tracked by radar and by radio by the Defense Department. And when one goes off, they are able to quickly locate airplanes based on that. It's usually a lot easier for them to find them. The tower heard the signal in this case, and I'm sure the Defense Department got a signal. They probably called the airline all that, but they didn't talk about that. That happens in most of these crashes, actually, and they just don't usually bring it up. All on board this flight perished. One maintenance personnel on the ground suffered minor injuries from smoke inhalation. Was he in the hangar? I'm sure. And it's That just, must have been an interesting experience. Well, to be honest, this was in the middle of the morning. It blows my mind that there weren't more people. They were very fortunate. In the air disasters episode, they talked about how like people were running in front of fire trucks just trying to get out of the building. And Crap. then when the firefighters went in and they were starting to, like, they were just putting out fires, trying to find survivors, and they thought that there were crash dummies strewn everywhere. They weren't dummies, were they? They're never dummies, and they're never mannequins, they're okay? They're never mannequins, they're never dummies, they're people. Yeah. So... If you listen to any true crime podcast... It's never a mannequin. It's never a mannequin. <laughs> Anyways, away from the more morbid stuff... Uh, the airplane was completely destroyed in the post-crash fire. A As I would assume. Yep. Just crashing into the ground would probably destroy the airplane. Yeah. A portion of the fuselage behind the trailing edge of the wings and forward of the cargo door was found inverted. The area surrounding the cargo door was laying on its right side. The tail section was laying inverted. Now here's where things get really interesting to me. The captain's four-point rotary harness was found unbuckled. So his literally the four point her? harness, yeah, or her her four point harness where it connects in the front was unbuckled. The only point where it was attached was the permanent part of it. I thought they had a five point harness. This one was a four point. 
Oh, okay. Several of the first officers' rotary harness connection points were also disconnected. Not all of them. And it's something I'll talk about later. Okay, then I won't ask the question Because I was going to be like, I can look and find out why. No, 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 no. Don't look it up because I know all about it. I'll tell you later. The aircraft was crushed from the nose rearward. Which makes sense. Usually aircraft uh, crash Usually nose they first. don't go forward, I would think. They impact no, nose no, first. Nose yeah, first. They, I yeah. don't think that damage would go from back to front. Right, they wouldn't we, crush forward. We talked forward, about yeah. this before. Like why they put cockpit voice recorders and stuff in the tail. Yep. Because oh, we, usually they crash forward first. That episode was lost. No, it wasn't. We talked about it in episode seven with Chris. Oh, okay. That's true. <laughs> the episode specifically on CVRs we did, yes, but not in general. We've talked about it before. This investigation was performed by the NTSB, which, yes, uh, I realize we've done a lot of the U.S. lately, but I promise we'll go international in a couple weeks. Uh, most of our recommendations do come from the United States or about the United States. So, But the next international sense. one is also a request. Yes, it is. But every, it is every so elsewhere. often we get an international one. Well, do. it's because this individual is from Australia. Anyways, investigators were able to recover both black boxes, as you could probably tell by the way Nick told the story. But they did have to work through some difficulty with the CVR. For one, parts of it had melted, though not the tape. So they were actually able to get the tape in its entirety. But parts of the CVR were melted, and that's bad. That that was probably pretty hot fire then. It was. It yes. was full of fuel. But they are also supposed to be rated to 1,100 degrees Celsius. Yeah, I thought so. For like 30 minutes, right? Like yeah. they're supposed to withstand that amount of, of stuff. So there's some questions there. Oh, good. Okay. But additionally, the volume of very high frequency or VHR radio messages was so low compared to the mics inside the cockpit that it was actually really hard to hear what the radio transmissions said. And they all recorded onto one track, so it wasn't easy to like just edit the audio like we do with this podcast and bring some sections up and they couldn't do that right well was it still on tape or was it digital i don't know it didn't say point is they said that they couldn't do it okay well and so they were mad about it i mean i get it (laughs) so yeah anyways the flight data recorder had something interesting to reveal this particular airplane had just undergone a Detail 6 or D6 maintenance check, as Nick had mentioned, on the 6th, two days prior, and all the data on the FDR before the check looked fantastic. But the flights after showed something a little wonky. They did something, didn't they? They screwed something up. And so it begins. During the nine flights since the maintenance check, the elevator pitch was a little off. What do I mean by that? Normally during cruise for flight, the elevator is usually at 4 degrees airplane nose down direction, or A&D. This was what was recorded on the flights before the check. But after the check, cruise flights showed that the elevator was at 13 degrees, based on the pitch control position sensor, even though the elevator was still actually at 4 degrees. So there was a 9 degree discrepancy. Mm-hmm. This discrepancy limited how far the elevator could move when it needed to reach its maximum downward position. When the accident crew attempted to pitch the plane down, rather than being able to reach the 16, 14, whatever degrees, they were only able to achieve 7. Uh-oh. So the airplane couldn't nose down very hard. It could only nose down up to 7 degrees in elevator pitch. Mm-hmm. So that means the airplane wouldn't nose over as quickly as it could normally. Yep. Literally half as much yep. or less. Oh, good. Tell yeah. me more. <laughs> So what happened during that maintenance check? 
Interviews and records revealed that the mechanic was actually a subcontractor who was told to check the tension of the elevator control system cables and adjust the tension if needed. He had not previously done this on the Beechcraft 1900D Mm -hmm. and was given on-the-job training by the QA inspector from Uh... Raytheon. Especially when you have a control surface like the elevators, you know, that like give the pitch to the plane. Maybe you should have someone who's a little more qualified do it. It gets better. So they had the inspector train him. Upon his interview, the mechanic said he adjusted the cables but didn't perform all 25 steps of the elevator control system rigging. He just did the ones that applied to cable tensioning. Uh Uh-huh. What? But wait. If there's 25 steps, why wouldn't you do all 25? Correct. Let me continue. To keep the cables taut, there are two turnbuckles, one for airplane nose up, or ANU, and one for down, A&D, as I said earlier. They are supposed to be extended the same amount to work properly, but amidst the wreckage, the A&D turnbuckle was found to be 1.76 inches more extended than the ANU, and this would account for the limited downward elevator travel, despite the FDR showing that the elevator could travel its full range of motion. Is there any way for the crew to have known this? On the outside, the elevator's normal resting position would have changed from 14 to 15 degrees A&D to 7 degrees A&D. But investigators determined that this wouldn't have really been visually noticeable unless they had something to compare it with. Right. You can't just see 7 degrees. Right. Okay, and is this... So, is this plane a T-tail or is it straight up? It is a T-tail. So, so the elevators are on the the T part of the tail, right? Correct. But that's pretty high up. I don't know, if any of you have ever seen a T-tail, there are T-tails that still exist. Um, oh, plenty of them. Yeah, a lot but of them. it would be really, really hard to do a walk around and see the difference of between seven degrees. of seven degrees on the elevators. Yes. <sighs> In the cockpit, there would have been a slight forward shift of the control column's neutral position by about three quarters of an inch forward. Again, not three quarters of an inch is not very much. No. No. It's not enough to be able to tell, trust me. No. Now let's go back to that mechanic. Five of the six subcontracted mechanics on duty during the D6 check had been working at that airport, which was Huntington, West Virginia, for less than six weeks and had not completed the training for the D6 maintenance check. The only reason that that guy was picked for the cable tensioning is because he had experience doing it on a DHC-8. Much bigger airplane. Okay, but it's a different airplane. It is. Much bigger airplane. And that is also the stated reason why the QA inspector who was teaching him didn't closely supervise him. The QA inspector is the one who okayed skipping steps. No! Before leaving to go train another mechanic on something else. The QA inspector said in his interview that, quote, He did not think the manufacturer intended for mechanics to follow the entire rigging procedure and that the entire procedure had not been followed when past cable tension adjustments had been made, end quote. Then what's the point of making it that long? Because there's other things that you do, and I will get into it right now. Great. One of the steps that was skipped (laughs) was to actuate the elevator to its fullest extent and read what the FDR said. Investigators found that if this step had been performed, they likely would have found the 9-degree discrepancy. Yep. The QA inspector said he skipped the step because he didn't think the plane had an FDR. Okay, listen. Any commercial aircraft, any aircraft that is used for commercial, especially passenger transport, has to have an FDR in the United States. One. Two, it was visible. The FDR. Mm-hmm. Three, there was a circuit breaker for it. So, moving on. The, okay, this inspector, I have issues. I know. Well, so did they. We'll get into that. <laughs> so, now, why was the plane tilted so far back in the first place? So that a stall happened? Sure, they couldn't recover because of the elevator problems, but how did they get into this situation to begin with? It did not happen on the previous nine flights. And it's not what you think. 
Let's go into their calculations for a second. Great. The flight crew's calculations showed a takeoff weight of 17,028 pounds and a CG of 37.8%. As we discussed in episode 10, that percentage is like the length of the plane and how far back from the nose right. the CG is. So center of gravity, by the way. Yes, that. Those of you who have not listened to episode 10, CG is center of gravity. Not so where the gravity. center of gravity would be compared to where everything is on the plane. Not and that's your, rot- that's your rotation point. That's where you calculate lines of force from. Right. Not computer-generated graphics, which is what most people think of as CG. Sorry. Yeah, no. <laughs> Sorry. I got ahead so of myself. You know. <laughs> so they calculated it to be 17,028 pounds and 37.8% CG. Which was within limits. The maximum was 17,120 pounds and 40%. So their calculations were within limits. There were three minor miscalculations that we'll go through first. First, the flight crew said that taxiing would burn 220 pounds of fuel when Air Midwest assumes a taxi burn of 110, so half that. Mm -hmm. So, already 110 pounds over. The gate crew said that two of the 31 bags were between 70 and 80 pounds, but were not accounted for as overweight bags on the load manifest and weren't calculated in the weight and balance accordingly. However, However, he does say that he told the flight crew. So they should have calculated it properly. That ground crew member said he told him that he felt that two of the bags were overweight. Probably 70 to 80 pounds, though they weren't marked as heavy, he said. So those of you who don't know, overweight bags, and I don't know about U.S. Air off the top of my head, but I know for Spirit and Frontier, it's between 40 to 45 pounds is the normal weight for a checked bag. If it's over that, it's overweight, and you have to pay more money because it, it weighs more. Most major airlines, it's 50. So... Probably here, it's probably around the same. So having a, and a 70 to 80 pound bag, that's what within 20 to 30 pounds more than it should have been. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of a big deal when you're talking about weight and balance. Stuff. And it's actually, yes. I think, more like 40 to 50 pounds more than they were using as the average checked bag weight yes. for that plane. Correct. For that airline. Or oh, for airline. the airline. Yep. That's almost 100 pounds then. The ground crew member said that the forward cargo cargo compartment, which, by the way, yes, is in the nose, was loaded to 98%, he believed. About 98% full. What about the ones that aft. were in the rear of the plane? The aft was also extremely full. That's why they had to move bags into the fuselage, into the cabin. Yeah. So they had a lot of weight on the front part of the plane, as well as a lot of weight in the back part of the this plane. This was a very full plane. Yes, it was. Um, they were less than 100 pounds from their, their max. max. So at the time, they were accounting for checked baggage in the aft compartment as 25 pounds. So something being oh, 70 to 80 pounds. That's like 70, close to 75. Yeah, not, so it's not good not news. Right. My brain did not do that right. It's a lot. 60 pounds-ish. Yeah, times two. Yeah. So 120 extra pounds. Hundred and. No, well, hold on. My brain fell out. Yeah. Anyway, like, wait. <laughs> <laughs> Lastly, they used a weight of 175 pounds for a 12-year-old. What? Because they just accounted for the kid as a regular passenger, not as a kid. Anyway. Okay. So, but even accounting for these mistakes, the flight still would have been in the acceptable takeoff envelope. They would have been in limits. Mm-hmm. Correct. Now, let's address the bigger industry-wide problem. Investigators went through the hassle of getting all of the passengers and crews weight, whether that be from the medical examiner, next of kin, doctors, or FAA medical certificates. Is this the one where they assumed the weight was uh, under what it was? I remember hearing about this. The average weight of the American has 
increased. Yes, so they then they also weighed the baggage from the wreckage. So. Right. Using this more precise data compared to the average weights normally used in weight and balance calculations, there was a huge variance. This was mostly attributed to using an average passenger weight that hadn't been updated for ages. A weight of 175 pounds per passenger, including carry-on items. Uh-oh, yeah, no, no. The FAA did a study and found the average adult passenger to be more like 195 pounds. Yes. They found the actual takeoff weight to be 17,443 pounds and a CG of 43.3%. Which is well outside of limits. Both of which are outside of the takeoff envelope. In short, the plane was heavy and tail heavy particularly. When a plane is loaded more aft than its aft limit, the pitch control required downward is greater than usual and they were already restricted by the elevator cable nonsense. Investigators found that these two separate these two situations separately would have been flyable, but together caused a catastrophe. It was the perfect storm, and it as it normally is. And they particularly lost control when the landing gear went up because the nose landing gear then shifted backward, shifting so the CG the further back, further back. Yep. So that's why they pitched up so much right yep. after the landing gear were retracted. That gaining speed also assists with the nose going up. So yeah, um, if while I have this table pulled, I can talk about it. Um, this is kind of going into what happened after this crash, but Air Midwest, in five months, changed their weight and balance policy. So before the accident, they used average weights of 25 pounds for checked baggage, 25 pounds for carry-on that were checked at boarding. So mm-hmm. they counted those as 25 pounds also. They accounted for passengers in the winter as 165 pounds plus 10 pounds for, of carry-on baggage and personal items to be a total of 175 pounds in the winter, and then 170 pounds in the summer. So, fun fact, the NTSB didn't like that either. Okay. So it has been changed so that checked bags are 30 pounds, carry-ons checked at the gate are 20, and passengers are 190 pounds all year with only 10 pounds for personal items, no carry-on baggage. That that makes more sense to me. But they still weren't happy with that. No, they weren't. I mean, I can't understand that, too. People get bigger. They didn't want to use average weights at all. No. Which makes sense. They wanted you to stand on a scale before you got in the plane. Essentially. That's, uh, that's a little excessive. I mean, yes. having... So, take, for instance, the three of us, right? I am probably the smallest of the three of us. I'm around 140 to 150 pounds, mm-hmm. you know, depending on everything. So, mm-hmm. and I'm a small person. I'm 5'1". Christy is um, a couple... I'm 180. Yeah. So you're about 30 pounds more than me. And then Nick is... Don't even go there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but my point being is you can use an average of the three of us and it would probably be around, I don't Hold know, on. maybe... Now people are going to be able to back calculate Nick's weight. Sorry, Nick. Oh, Jeebus. And unless do you? I don't do you know. care? Do you care? Nah, it's fine. <laughs> okay, we won't I'm say it if you really, really want to know. I'm hefty. Some of it's muscle, guy. <laughs> <laughs> so the average of us is actually close to my weight, which is on um, they say 186. Yeah. So I mean, if you do an average weight, which makes sense, right? Doing an average weight means you're accounting for the people like me who are smaller, but you're also accounting for the people who counterbalance the small people, like right? Like me. But if for whatever reason, I don't know, you have a football team on board, 
that's different. Which uh, to me would mean you should always have a bigger number to assume weight than lower. It's better to be underweight than to be overweight. We'll get into this a lot deeper. Great. <laughs> I am just going to throw a fun fact out there, but Hawaiian Airlines has to have a higher average weight than all... Samoans tend to be bigger people. This isn't yes. just us generalizing. This is a fact of that Hawaiian Airlines accounts for each passenger to be heavier than the that is normal correct. American citizen. And to be fair, normal American citizens are just bigger. Mm -hmm. Americans nowadays, compared to even 20 to 30 years ago, are bigger. My point being is the higher the average is, the better chance you have to not have overbalance, overweight issues. Mm -hmm. Because then even if you're overcompensating, it's better to overcompensate and have everyone be safe than undercompensate like what happened here and have a perfect storm of things that happened. Correct. So, I mean, not to say that Americans are fat, but Americans are fat. <laughs> Oh, I'll absolutely <laughs> fall into that category. Uh, I am also technically overweight. So am I. So I can't. <laughs> I can't You're say. a lot of muscle. We are all average Americans yeah, these days. I do have a lot of muscle, but technically for my height, I'm overweight. Break. break. Let's take a break and we'll get more into this a lot more. Great. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome back. <laughs> and we're back. Okay, so let's dive into these things a lot more because this is even more complicated than that. So for findings, they found that the airplane entered the Detail 6 or D6 maintenance check with an elevator control system that could achieve full elevator travel downward. Not a huge surprise. The airplane went into maintenance. Fully functional, the elevator worked as intended. Yeah, it, it was fine before they did the maintenance check. Yep. The airplane's elevator control system was incorrectly rigged during the D6 maintenance check, and the incorrect rigging restricted the airplane elevator travel to 7 degrees of airplane nose down, or about half of the downward travel specified by the airplane manufacturer. I'm still mad about it. Yep. So are they. They found that the changes to the elevator were not conspicuous to the flight crew, so they couldn't tell. As I said. Yep. They found that the Raytheon Aerospace QA inspector did not provide adequate on-the-job training and supervision to the structural modification and repair technician's mechanic, who examined and incorrectly adjusted the elevator control system. They believe that... It's not entirely his fault. Okay, the crash itself was a combination of two different issues. Yes. But he allowed someone to do a process improperly. Okay, but did he? Or was it the airline? Because he was a contractor. I guess it could have been the airline, but... We'll get into that. Check your inspectors, I guess. Yep. They found that because the inspector and the mechanic did not diligently follow the elevator control system rigging procedures as written... They missed a critical step that would have likely detected the misrigging and thus prevented the accident. I also think because he didn't think there was an FDR that he should just not work in commercial aviation. Because... I just, yeah, it, there's a lot of things wrong with this. Absolutely. I agree with you. And so do they. They found that a complete functional check at the end of the maintenance for critical flight systems 
or their components would help to ensure their safe operation, but no such check is currently required. This changed, and this one is big. And this comes up about five more times. We'll get into that, but essentially what they're saying is when they're done with the maintenance, go run the airplane, go check all the surfaces, ensure that they're all functioning. Anything that is critical to flight must be checked when everything is buttoned up. I mean, it makes sense. Yep. Elevators are, like, big. Yep. They found that Flight 5481 had excessive aft center of gravity, which combined with the reduced downward elevator travel resulting from the incorrect rigging, rendered the airplane uncontrollable in the pitch axis. Yeah. That. So that's just the whole gist of why this happened. I feel like reading the findings is, like, evaluating how well I did in my explanation. Yes. Oh, just wait. Or just, like, do we understand what's happening? Yes. Yes, we do. (laughs) They found that the Air Midwest weight and balance program at the time of the accident was not correct and resulted in substantially inaccurate weight and balance calculations for the flight. They found that Air Midwest revised weight and balance program is also unacceptable because it may result in an inaccurate calculation of an airplane's center of gravity. Mind you, that's because this report came out after that five months later they did the weight and balance thing after the crash. Yeah, this came out after that. And so they were like, no, do it again, do it even more because this still didn't work. Yep, they used the new calculations, and it still wouldn't have reflected accurately what was on board. Nope. Yeah, I, I th- though I think standing on a scale before you get on a plane is a little excessive. Because then the people who who are fairly, fairly overweight, like obese, they wouldn't be able to fly at all. Kind of. You yeah. know what I mean? Not necessarily. In a small airplane like this, they would have to limit. Yeah. Okay, so this is one of the things that bothered me about the findings a little bit. So we talked about all that whole, we got into the whole inspector thing, and we kind of brushed the surface off of that, right? We got, we got, we started talking about that in the findings, and then suddenly we jumped into the weight and balance thing, right? Right. Okay, now we're going back to the other one. Great. They found that Air Midwest did not properly oversee the work performed by Raytheon Aerospace and structural modifications and repair technicians personnel at its Huntington, West Virginia maintenance station and did not ensure that the accident airplane was returned to surface in an airworthy condition. Nah, really? Yeah. You don't say. This is where they start shifting the blame away from the people and start going to the company. Okay, company is... So here's my problem with that too, though. Mm -hmm. You're contracting people that should know how to do maintenance on an airplane, right? That's the whole point. And um, this is, is this like US Air who's doing this or is this the other company that's con? This is Air Midwest. So Air Midwest, they're a fairly small company, I would assume, right? They're smaller, yes. So it would make sense that they would contract people out to do maintenance. But you're contracting them out to do that maintenance, right? Right. So my issue would be is you were were contracted by the company to do this maintenance Mm -hmm. or to do these inspections. You should know if you were being contracted to this company to do these amount of inspections and this amount of maintenance on these different airplanes because they're owned by that company. Correct. So we'll get into why this is – why – they feel this is the company's problem. Okay. Because this is a lot more complicated than that even. Oh, great. (laughs) What I just said was even confusing to me. (laughs) Right. And I get it. Because this gets even more confusing. But I'll I'll try to clarify along the way. They found that when an inspector provides an on-the-job training for a required inspection item, or an RII, maintenance task, and then inspects the same task, the independent nature of the RII inspection is compromised oh yeah i forgot about that he also signed off that he inspected it and didn't yes 
So the because whole, he was the one instructing, he figured it was fine. The whole idea behind QA inspectors, and I know a lot about this because actually my job technically falls under that department. I literally work with QA inspectors all day long in the aviation industry. And the whole idea behind QA inspectors is that they are there to check the work performed. If they do the work, they should not be checking the work. That is technically a conflict of interest. It makes sense, because you would say, oh yeah, I know I did this right. But, but it's that way in so many other industries. It's called separation of responsibility. Absolutely. It's like that in my profession. It's like that in... You cover your butt. In yep. accounting, you're not allowed to post or pay or whatever the stuff you've worked on. You need to have a second. I am under the QA department, but the QA department being above me technically checks my work. At my job. It's always good to have your work checked. It's always good to double check. Have somebody it else will do it. <laughs> never hurt you to get your anything double checked. It's like when you used to write a paper in school, or some of you may be in school, right? Mm -hmm. Writing a paper and then having someone else read it and edit it, or even rereading it again. But you should always cover your butt. You know, it's yeah. better to cover your butt and make sure everything goes well than have it be your fault, right? And then you have your job on the line or your reputation on the line or whatever right or you know people's lives on the line yep as in this case they found that air carriers that use contractors to perform required inspection item maintenance tasks and inspections need to provide substantial and direct oversight during each work shift to ensure that this work is being properly conducted this is really where they start to take a hit at the the air carrier they're saying okay you hired this contractor that means you believe they can do the work. And they didn't do it properly. But what they're saying is that that's really on you because you're paying for it, but you're not doing any of the oversight. You're not actually making sure they can do the work. Like, they literally don't have personnel on site from the airline to make sure that they're doing the work that's required for the airplane correctly. They found that Air Midwest did not have maintenance training policies and procedures in place to ensure that, um, that each of its maintenance stations had an effective on-the-job training program. What? Yeah, okay. Now you're starting to understand. Because, okay, yeah, now I get why it's the company's fault. Yes, because they didn't train properly. Not only did they not train properly, they didn't even have policies and procedures in place to train properly. They didn't even have policies and procedures in place to make a, a proper workstation out of these contracted workstations. At that point, what's the point What's the point of hiring these people? You have no idea if what they can do is correct. Yep. So continuing, they found that it is important that air carrier on-the-job training programs are developed in accordance with detailed guidance that emphasizes effective training practices. Hammering on the training thing. They found that Air Midwest did not ensure that its maintenance training was conducted and documented in accordance with the company's maintenance training program, which degraded the quality of work at the Huntington facility. So in other words, even the maintenance training that they did have, they didn't even have documentation to prove that they trained that. Dude, I have so many issues. Well, Air Midwest went out of business in 2008, just so you know. Well, good, because clearly... Yeah, like four years after this report came out. Yep. Clearly this... They didn't know how to do stuff correctly. Yeah. So They found that Air Midwest's Continuing Analysis and Surveillance Systems Program, which is a actually commonplace, it's called CAS, was not being effectively implemented because it did not, it did not adequately identify deficiencies in the Air Carrier's Maintenance Program, including some that were found by the FAA prior to the accident. Yep, the FAA knew they had problems. The air carrier knew they had problems. So that means that they're, what they're calling, the, the what they say, the CAS, the Continuing Analysis and Surveillance Systems Program, which is 
basically, literally, the oversight program for their maintenance, where they check everything all the time and make sure that they're following procedures. No, they weren't doing that. They didn't find the problems. They didn't any of that. And the FAA identified problems before the accident. They didn't do anything about it. Yeah, that's the FAA's fault. This is the pew, pew, pew part. The yep. pew, pew, pew. You'll see. They, <laughs> there's, a, there's one that hammers in harder to the FAA. Great. They found that accurate and, and usable work cards developed jointly by air carriers and aircraft manufacturers would improve the performance of maintenance for critical flight systems. So this is like saying a, a, a work instruction for the airplane. So a more detailed, here's exactly how you do the job, follow this step by step, and you will have done it perfectly. It's, it's you know, baby's first maintenance on the airplane, on this system specifically. When it comes to critical flight systems, it seems important to have those cards. Essentially, they did have one for this, but they're saying that they would rather that the air carrier work with the aircraft manufacturer to develop a card specific to them and what they do and the maintenance on those flight controls to work to the training that is provided to their personnel. So in other words, bring it to their level. Right. Customize it. So instead of having 25 steps, they could have potentially 15, right? But make it so that it still works. So yeah, so you're still doing the same things, but maybe skipping the things that you don't 100% need. So maybe they agree with them in that Yes, you don't need all 25 steps. You were only trying to do the tension procedure. Yeah, so develop what, a tensioning procedure. But yeah, then here is the tensioning procedure separately and the parts from the other procedure that you need and here, to finish that work. So yeah, so everything, this is the list that we've compiled from the list of things that the manufacturer has said. Now, here is the list that we require you to do to make sure that this is done correctly to its best ability. Exactly. And all of that. They found that the FAA's failure to aggressively pursue pursue the serious deficiencies in the Air Midwest maintenance training program that were previously and consistently identified permitted the practices that prevailed at the Huntington facility and during the D6 check of the accident airplane. Yeah, so the FAA knew there were problems. They didn't fix anything. Yep, they didn't push the airline to fix it either. Yeah, so that's a problem. The F- that's the whole point of having the FAA. <laughs> Yep. You're supposed to be the regulatory body that's saying, yo, this is wrong. You need to redo this yep. or you need to figure this out so that this doesn't, you know, cause an accident. Right. You know? They found that updating continuing analysis and surveillance systems, CAS, guidance would help FAA aviation safety inspectors ensure that CAS programs are being effectively implemented at 121 operators. So we're talking about part 121 of the FAR AIM, so the Federal Aviation Regulations. Part 121 is any major airline operator, by the way. But I'll be using that term here quite a bit more. So I thought I'd clarify that. They found that the air carrier maintenance programs should be subject to the same standard that exists for other air carrier programs. This is important because we're talking about now the maintenance side. Something we haven't really talked about a whole lot. We've talked about it. But something we haven't really talked about a whole lot. And that is, this accident kind of became a turning point in modern aviation and in the U.S., in that they wanted to make sure that air carriers, big and small, as long as they're Part 121, are being checked with their maintenance programs, that they are being checked as rigorously as all other parts of the industry are. So they check all of the, you know, flight crew requirements. They check cabin crew requirements, aircraft manufacturing standards, instrumentation standards, system standards, all those things. But Maintenance standards were kind of, eh, 
there's a little bit of leeway there. The FAA wasn't really putting enough oversight into that, and air carriers weren't either. So they're saying they want to hold the air carrier's maintenance standards to a much higher level than they were. Well, in that way, we don't have an issue like we did with Alaska 261, uh-huh. too, where you're using two different types of grease, and that ends up, you wouldn't think that would be an issue, right. but it was an issue, right? And yep. if you want to know more about that, check the Patreon. Ha <laughs> Plug. Okay. Plug. <laughs> But right. shameless. I shameless plug. But my yep. point being is it's happened before, right? With yep. air carriers, especially 121 operators. Alaska Airlines is a 121 operator, right? Yep. They're a commercial airline. And so is US Air. And so is this specific. Air Midwest. Thank you. Air, air Midwest. Midwest. Yeah. So having your maintenance be to the best of its ability and making sure those people are doing inspections correctly so that Stuff like this doesn't happen. So yep. that maintenance crashes don't happen. Correct. Because maintenance crashes are not the fault of the pilot and usually the fault of either the maintenance personnel, which we've talked about, or the air carrier. Yep. And that can be a big problem because people can sue you for that. Yep. So We'll, we'll make this clear. The pilots had no fault in this accident. No. They're, and they got sued. They tried to do... Yeah. They the, got sued? The airline got sued, I should say. Yeah, oh, the airline got so sued. So the airline should you, get sued. You said something before I wanted to say my Sorry. Opinion. So there was an 18-year-old on board, and her parents sued. Yep. Okay. Um, and they actually did something really unique that no one had really ever done when suing an airline. And part of this, the lawsuit was they demanded an apology. A public apology. I mean, I get that. It it was the air carrier's fault. Yep. If you take into account both the maintenance issue and the overbalance issue, technically all of it was the air, airline carrier's fault. Yes. So in that, I would suggest that, yes, you should apologize. If you Which wanna... was not commonplace, actually, to happen after a crash. This was one of the first times that an airline had publicly apologized for what was their fault. Yep. Most of the time, they just paid to shut them up. My point being is keeping higher maintenance standards helps with people not getting sued. Yes. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? Yep. The big, and we've talked about it before with maintenance issues, especially in the United States, but some in in the international flights we've done, is families get upset. They do. People get upset. You just killed a family member. And I don't blame them. Don't get me wrong. I, I am all for airlines, but I also understand the human part of this, and this is... I mean, it is There's very always true. room for human error. The weight and balance issue, I think, they just didn't do... I, I think that was an accident. I don't think they really understood that part of it. The industry didn't really understand it very well. But, but. the maintenance thing, that's a problem. That was a mm-hmm. big thing that the, the airline could have fixed with better standards in maintenance. And I don't want to get into this too much because I don't want to go off on too much of a tangent. Sorry. But, <laughs> no, it's fine. But the... The airlines also, and within the whole industry, I think there was this little bit of misconception, and not even misconception so much as just an atmosphere of, okay, this is the airplane's weight and balance capabilities, but we can go a little above those tolerances and we'd probably be fine. And while that generally holds true, the airplanes are designed with a tolerance, so basically, this is the weight and balance capabilities, this is where you should keep it, but if you go a little bit outside of that, the airplane will still fly. And in theory, this airplane would have still flown if it hadn't had the elevator problem. They said that the issues on their own separately would have been fine. They could have flown it the weight that it was. Yep. 
they shouldn't have, but they could have. Right. It was out of its tolerance, which they didn't know. But it was out of its tolerance, and it still actually would have flown. And so there's this little bit of misconception in the industry, too, that's like... And I think that's why the average weights were lower, and didn't people didn't really think they mattered much. It was because it was like, eh, yeah, but there's a tolerance, and the airplane will be fine. Yeah, but if there's another issue... With the airplane, that's then a big you have a problem. problem. And this is when that proved itself. And so I think this kind of started to change the mentality in the industry. Anyways, they found... So here's one, actually, that they side a little bit with the FAA and simultaneously attack them. <laughs> yes. A backhanded compliment, if you would. Yes. They found that the lessons learned by the FAA through its Human Factors Research Program need to be used to develop mandatory programs to prevent human error in aviation maintenance. So, as I said, the FAA was the one who conducted that study that was like, oh, American weights have gone up. Right. Yep. So, they're like, yeah, you did that, but you still messed up. And just the same, they're saying in their maintenance programs, there's human factors that can be missed when they say, ah, we don't need the rest of these. That's a human factor. They just missed the rest of the maintenance program. Which, I get. So... They're saying that, obviously, the FAA is doing all this research into the human factors part of aviation, and there's going to be a whole lessons learned thing about that. The FAA loves their lessons learned page, but what they're saying is that, okay, great, you published that lessons learned page, when are you going to make something mandatory about it? That makes sense. I I would be kind of PO'd about that, too. Yeah, so the NTSB simultaneously said, this is amazing, your program, your research program for this is great work. Now make something of that. Make something permanent in the regulations that says this has to be, there has to be some oversight on human factors. So human factors are going to be a, a thing as long as humans are flying Absolutely. and maintaining airplanes, which by the way will I probably agree. be forever because there's only so much computers can do. There's always um, a human factor somewhere along the line. And, and, I, and you got to you, you gotta respect the human factor. Humans make mistakes. Yeah, Murphy's Law will always exist, too. So we're bound to always have something that happens. But the idea is that we catch some of them before they happen, and we limit what does happen. So having, you know, better maintenance practices or having better weight and balance practices on either yep. side would have saved this airplane. Yes. But they both happened concurrently. Yep. And so it went boom. Yep. So in order to not go boom, maybe figure it out. Right. So now we shift back to the weight side. They found that the use of average weights does not ensure that an aircraft will be loaded within weight in the center of gravity envelope. So that's when they wanted people to like be on, like get on a scale before they get on the airplane. Basically, but they keep it a little more general than that because they're not even saying a scale. They actually just want a system. And I'll dive into this a little bit more. I haven't done a whole lot of research on this, but what I do know is that there is a way they do this now. A little bit. So one thing I want to say, too, about, like, stepping on a scale thing is, like, if one person's going to make the overweight of the plane go over, right? Mm -hmm. Are you just going to have a paying customer not get on the plane? So that's actually what would have happened in this instance per Air Midwest policy. They would have either taken bags off or taken two people off. If they had calculated things correctly, they should have asked two people to get off. So this is what the airlines essentially do. What they do is they say, okay, this airplane is overweight. Well, then they ask the passengers, they say, is anybody willing to switch flights for a voucher or, you know, just a later flight? Like $500 for another flight. I do want to go back a little bit. So per Air Midwest's new weight and balance policy, the Beechcraft 1900D could no longer carry 19 passengers. Nope. Oh, because it would have been overweight. So now it could only carry 17. 
Ah. Yep. And so, actually, there's quite a few airplanes in the 19-passenger class, which is really weird. It's really weirdly specific. But the only reason they're all 19 and rather than, like, an odd, they're an odd number rather than an even number is because all of them have three seats in the back row. Yep, one, as did this one. Three on the back wall. And there, yeah, there's actually quite a few airplanes that fall into that category. Others, namely, you have the Metroliner, as a lot of people know it, the Fairchild Metroliner. There's there's like 18 different names for that we thing. We Fairchild... cover one in a while. Yes, we do. The Fairchild Dornier Metroliner 3 F-227. It's got like 18 names. Jeez. <laughs> oh, the airplane, it's one airplane. But anyways, that airplane had 19 seats as well. And that one was a lot more crammed, but it had really powerful Robinson engines in it. And so that airplane never had a problem with the 19 seats it has. They found that the FAA's average weight assumptions were not correct. So this is just saying the industry in general, basically. The average weight assumptions were just not For the true. average American. I mean, it yeah. makes sense. Yeah. Things change over time, so that's not really their fault. But... Hashtag Americans are fat. <laughs> yeah. Not all Americans, just the average American. <laughs> yes. They found that periodic sampling of passenger and baggage weights would determine whether air carrier average weight programs were accurately representing passengers and baggage loads. So they want to do samples of the weights of passengers and bags at different times for different reasons. Which is what they had done. Yes. To determine what, you know, how the weights change over time. And that's why we started talking about seasonally, people change too. I mean, that's true. But if you you have an overall Mm -hmm. big... Amount. Like I said, overdoing it's better than underdoing it. They found that current safety margins in air carrier average weight and balance programs do not ensure that aircraft will be loaded within their manufactured certified and FAA approved weight and CG envelopes. So there kind of is. They say that there's no safety margin within those weight and balances. So they're saying essentially if the airplane has this weight and balance envelope, then you can use all of it, but they should be leaving an envelope on either end, a margin. They found that technology may enable air carriers to accurately determine weight and effectively control balance while maintaining operational efficiency. Now I'll talk about it. Airplanes these days, a lot of modern ones, mainly Airbus, can tell you the weight and balance of the airplane. That's creepy. Well, think about it. It's a three-point system. It can tell you it's... The most balanced shape, anyways, is a triangle. So it can tell you when it's leaning in what direction. That makes sense. So it basically senses its own CG. Yeah, essentially. I mean, you think about it. You just put weight sensors in the wheels. And it tells you its own CG. And as a matter of fact, a lot of the the bigger airplanes now can tell you even the CG of the cargo specifically. And they can shift within the cargo compartment. So it's crazy. Yeah. So like the modern triple sevens and a three thirties, actually, they can tell you, Oh, this, this container is a little bit heavier and the, the airplane can actually automatically switch places with several containers, shift them around. If it thinks that one's See, heavier than the other, we were thinking like people can stand on a scale, really basic no, technology. It's actually no. talking about an automated system know. within the dude, airplane. Dude, that's so cool. That's actually really you smart. Think about it, and it's I brilliant. feel, I feel really dumb. Okay. So this, we are this, talking about this is close to 20 years from when this happened. So yes. it com- I completely understand that that's completely feasible now. Yes. But that's like <laughs> super crazy to me. Like that's awesome. Yeah. You think about it. Like, this is would, the next modern step. And in general aviation, not general, um, in commercial aviation now, like it's kind mm-hmm. of one of those things where there shouldn't be an issue with weight and balance anymore because the right. plane can calculate everything for you. Essentially. Yes. Now 
that does not mean the industry relies on that because there you is shouldn't. <laughs> there's still not technically a policy to rely on it anyways. And so that means they still rely on you doing manual calculations. They still have to use an average, but this basically, by having these airplanes, these modern airplanes, allowing the airplane to basically give you, spit out a number for your CG and your your weight, then it at least has some kind of reference that once you've done your calculations, you check, you say, you okay, can double check both it. are within yeah. my envelope. This airplane is safe to fly. Yeah. There's two points now. It's the airplane saving your butt. Yes. That, that's kind of awesome. <laughs> it is, actually, and I think it was a brilliant addition. There's really no reason why they couldn't have done that sooner. earlier. <laughs> I, mean, I, I get that a lot of it has to do with computers and weight and stuff, but these days, but, I mean... But the early 2000s, I mean, we for sure probably had the technology to probably do that. Yeah. Now, the thing is, is that those systems aren't necessarily calibrated on a regular interval, so again, that's another reason why they don't trust them. Yeah, so having it be... But it's a good thing to check by. Yes, but if it's not calibrated properly, it could also swing the other way. It could say it's not safe when it is. Well, you think well, about that's it. That's why you would do the manual calculation, right? So you think about it. The only time that they can calibrate it is when they're doing an actual weight and balance to the empty aircraft during a heavy check, which only happens sometimes every five years for some airplanes. But if you think about something that big, like how much would not calibrating it consistently do? Like maybe five points either way would be it my really, guess. It, and here, I'm, since I do calibrations, what I can tell you is that as long as you are staying generally within the capacity of the load cells within the airplane so you know you have a load cell basically within each part yeah, of the land yeah, yeah. within each landing gear as long as you're staying within the capabilities of that which basically are the capabilities of the airplane's weight as long as you're staying within the capabilities of the airplane's weight there's no reason that those load cells should get overstressed now that's not to that's not to say that they won't change over time but it would be a lot slower and it should still stay within the tolerance based on the for five years the margin the safety yeah, margin until that's built they can into do them. another heavy check yeah. yeah. So again, these systems are still relatively new, anyways, and they're still not—they're still not relied upon. But it is a really nice feature. That's like super cool. <laughs> it is. <laughs> Two more findings, I promise. And then the recommendations are shorter, though they're still—they still feel long. They found that the Beach 1900 mechanics would benefit from using airliner maintenance manuals with more specific instructions for critical flight system procedures. So again, this is kind of hits on the—you know—we switch back now over to the maintenance side, but they're. They're saying, again, more specific instructions within the maintenance manuals coming from the manufacturer would help. And they found that because the CVR, or Cockpit Burst Recorder, can be one of the most valuable tools used for accident investigations, reliable daily test procedures are needed to safeguard CVR data. That was because of the melting and yeah. the problem with the hearing thing. That one being the last one in there definitely felt like a, we're mad like an and we want this. We're mad and we want this. They they tried to make it not like causal to anything. Mm -hmm. That was kind of their idea of putting it at the end, but it's still important enough to mm -hmm. be in there. So you might remember in one of our recent episodes, we talked a little bit about how one of the CVRs was very worn and poor. And so what they did was they suggested going full digital. Right. And these days, most of them are. There's no reason for them to be taped anymore. Almost all of them are. Yeah. I mean, everything we get now is digital, so there's not really a reason to have tape. It's far more reliable. I had the probable cause verbatim. The National Transportation Safety Board determines that the probable cause of this accident was the airplane's loss of pitch control during takeoff. 
The loss of pitch control resulted from the incorrect rigging of the elevator control system compounded by the airplane's aft center of gravity, which was substantially aft of the certified aft limit. Contributing to the cause of the accident were 1. Air Midwest lack of oversight of the work being performed at the Huntington, West Virginia maintenance station. 2. Air Midwest maintenance procedures and documentation. 3. Air Midwest weight and balance program at the time of the accident. 4. The Raytheon Aerospace Quality Assurance Inspector's failure to detect the incorrect rigging of the elevator control system. 5. The the Federal Aviation Administration's, or FAA's, average weight assumptions in its weight and balance program guidance at the time of the accident. And 6. The FAA's lack of oversight of Air Midwest maintenance program and its weight and balance program. Cool. Yeah, basically everything we've talked about. (laughs) Yeah. Maintenance and weight and balance issues. Yep. All of that total. Now for recommendations. They recommended adopting a program for performing targeted surveillance and increased oversight of maintenance practices at 121 operators to ensure that maintenance instructions are being followed as written and that all personnel related to the maintenance of operators' aircraft are following the steps in the instruction unless authorization has been granted by the air carrier's maintenance programs. This one's a little bit complicated, but I'm not going to get into it too much. Uh, basically, they just wanted to say that there needs to be more oversight on the program in general, especially if they're contractors, and that... That oversight also needs to include procedures that those personnel need to follow, like truly built procedures, and that they shouldn't deviate from those procedures unless the maintenance program from the air carrier itself approves that change. We kind of talked about that earlier. So Yeah. So in other words, if you're going to skip steps, the air carrier Make has sure to approve it. Make sure it's approved by the air carrier, yeah. Yes. Make sure the maintenance program from the air carrier makes sure that you can do that. Right. They recommended verifying that 121 operators have procedures in their CAS program for identifying deficiencies and incorporating changes to the air carrier's maintenance program, and that maintenance personnel for these air carriers use the procedures. Yeah. So use the procedures you make? Yeah. Which makes sense. So the CAS program is supposed to identify these deficiencies, incorporate the changes. So they wanted to make sure that the changes, if they notice a problem... They make a change to the procedures, and then that those procedures are then followed. They recommended adapting regulations to require that instructions for continued airworthiness and air carrier maintenance manuals include a complete functional check at the end of maintenance for each critical flight system. So just saying that when you're done with the maintenance, like we talked about, check all of the critical flight systems to make sure that they still function correctly. They recommended requiring manufacturers of 121 aircraft to identify appropriate procedures for a complete functional check of each critical system, determine which maintenance procedures could be followed by such functional checks, and modify their existing maintenance manuals so that they contain procedures at the end of maintenance for a complete functional check of each critical flight system. So now they're not just saying to require that maintenance personnel do it, but also make sure that it's part of procedures directly from the manufacturers. When you're done with this maintenance, you do the functional check, and here's what you look for. They recommended requiring 121 operators to modify their existing maintenance manuals so that they contain procedures for the functional checks. So not only do the manufacturers provide it, but now they want the air carriers to also provide it in their maintenance manuals. Prohibit inspectors from performing required inspection item inspections on any maintenance task for which the inspector provided on the job training to the mechanic who accomplished the task. All of that to say the inspector shouldn't check himself. Yeah, you need an inspector to check your inspector. Yep. They recommended requiring 121 operators that use contractors to perform inspection item maintenance tasks and inspections to have their air carrier personnel physically present and when substantial amounts of work are being completed and inspections are performed and are readily available when not physically present, 
and who are who ensure that the process and procedures used by the contractors are the same as the air carrier. So having somebody from the air carrier physically on site and if they're when they're doing heavy work and if they're not there then they are available and to make sure that they are they are there to ensure that they are following the procedures that the air carrier actually has in place. They recommended developing detailed on-the-job training requirements for 121 operators. They recommended the audit of training records for personnel currently performing work at Air Midwest and on Air Midwest aircraft to ensure that training was properly accomplished. So the records weren't kept for the training of the contractor. They need audit. They need audit. They recommended requiring air carriers to implement a program in which Carriers and aircraft manufacturers review all work card and maintenance manual instructions for critical flight systems and ensure accuracy and usability of these instructions so that they are appropriate for the level of training of the mechanics performing the work. So making the maintenance cards and maintenance manuals help the maintenance personnel at their level of training. Recommended requiring that all 121 air carrier maintenance training programs be approved. I can't believe that wasn't already in place. Yeah. So basically, they could do whatever they want with their maintenance programs, but they want it to be FAA-approved, essentially. That's actually kind of insane that it wasn't already a thing. Well, that's kind of what they were saying about the FAA not having enough oversight on maintenance programs, is they didn't have enough regulations on how that works. That's why we have the AIM now, which is basically, and the whole AMP program, because all of that is built around making sure that these procedures are written out for training. They recommended requiring that 121 operators implement comprehensive human factors programs to reduce the likelihood of human error in aviation maintenance. There's the human factors thing again we talked about. They recommended identifying those situations that would require actual instead of average weights in weight and balance computations. So they wanted to figure out which situations specifically should they use actual. And in small airplanes, it kind of makes sense. They recommended unless an actual weight program is developed and implemented, establish a program that requires 121 operators to periodically sample passengers and bag weights and determine appropriate statistical distribution characteristics for regional, seasonal, demographic, aircraft, and route variances. Which they did. They did, essentially, yes. They changed so that they would change with the times and whatever's happening, all the specifics. They also recommended establishing a program to periodically review 121 operator weight and balance data to ensure that all of those previously mentioned variable trends are valid. They recommended requiring operators to retain all survey data. Basically, they want them to retain all the survey data from those passenger and bag weight samples, as well as documentation and methodology used to justify the average weight program and to audit this data as necessary. They're committed to requiring 121 operators that use average weight and balance programs to develop and implement weight and CG safety margins to account for individual passenger and bag variances. So there you go, making a bigger safety margin, which is why they would go from 19 passengers to 17 on the Beach 1900, which is also why that airplane really isn't flown very often anymore. Yeah, and we talked about it before. It's better to be over safe than under safe. Yep. One of the last airlines to operate them in the United States actually was here in Denver, and they just shut down two years ago. Great Lakes Airlines. Aha! Why was that based here? I know! They're actually based in in Cheyenne, Wyoming, but their main operations were all here. Don't ask me. They were an all-around weird airline. I got to fly with them once. They recommended conducting or sponsoring research to develop systems that are capable of delivering actual aircraft weight and balance data before flight dispatch. These systems should rapidly provide accurate and reliable weight and balance data. There it is. The airplane does all these systems now. A lot of them, a lot of the airplanes are capable of doing this now in airplane. 
Also, when you check a bag, they have to weigh it. They recommend promoting the use of systems that deliver accurate weight and balance data as a preferred alternative to average weight and balance programs. So, there it is. They would rather have real data, which, again, airplanes can do. They recommend ensuring that Raytheon Aircraft Company revise the maintenance procedures for critical flight systems in the Beach 1900 series airliner maintenance manuals to ensure that the procedures can be completely and correctly accomplished. So they're saying that it might be a little bit too vague in the procedures, which is why the maintenance personnel and the inspector feel like they could skip steps. It was because the manufacturer maybe put too much and was a little too odd about the instructions. It didn't really intend for just a tension adjustment. They recommend requiring that all operators of aircraft equipped with CVRs test the functionality of the CVR system prior to the first flight of each day as part of the approved aircraft checklist. And this is actually true. They actually do. There's a there's quick tests in a lot of them now. They wanted the test to include listening to each one of the, the uh, recorded microphones and making sure they all work. Makes sense. Yeah, but now there's actually quick tests for these, which helps. Airplanes get so smart these days. And finally, they recommended identifying all airplanes equipped with unguarded flight crew member rotary seatbelt buckles and require replacement with guarded buckles that cannot be inadvertently unlatched. This one is last, and I, I kind of, it kind of, I, I don't understand why. Except that these airplanes went out of date anyways, so this changed. But I know we talked about this at the end of my accident portion. Yeah. But now we're going to talk about this more. Yeah, they found the seatbelts, the four-point harnesses... Unlocked. Unlocked on both the, the captain and the first officer. And that's because they were rotary-driven, so all it took was a little twist, and they would unlock. Oh, that's horrible. Yep. And the bigger thing about that is that they were unguarded. So, in other words, it just didn't take much force at all. Somebody bump it with their elbow, and suddenly you unlock all four points. That kind of defeats the purpose of a seatbelt. Yes. Is that why they changed it to five? That's part of why. And also, probably the actuating mechanism to unlock it. Yeah. So I understand why they didn't actually put much emphasis on this, because here's what they did explain at the end. The manufacturer of that four-point harness developed a guarded four-point harness 10 years prior to this accident. What? Yeah, 10 years prior to the accident. So a lot of airlines were replacing them. They didn't issue an AD, I don't believe, but they did request that a lot of airlines switch to the guarded four-point harness. Nah, really? Yes. In the end, it wouldn't have saved their lives. That's no, the unfortunate thing. but it could save someone else's. It could save someone else's. It doesn't seem like a safe enough system. So that one was pretty big to me. It's crazy that they, yeah, they just, they found them unbuckled, and they shouldn't have been. So, that's it. Okay, well... This one was kind of a long one, but... It, it was. We'll but I feel like we really went in-depth into what happened and what changed. This one was pretty critical, I think, in aviation. I, this is That's part of why I wanted to cover this one. I feel like this also revealed a side to like the normal person that you might not realize when you board a plane. Like, your weight is important. Oh, yeah. Yes. There's a lot is. of things we take for granted in aviation... And this, I think this whole incident kind of, when you talk about this one with anybody, and I've talked about it with a few strangers before in the past, it always kind of starts to put in perspective how they think of everything. And yeah. even when you when you just go there blindly and get on an airplane, you don't realize that there are so many things that happen in the background specifically for you 
that affect this airplane and the way it flies that, I mean, it's so easy to overlook it in reality, but it's so much safer and they think of everything. It's just crazy to me. It it blows my mind. It really does. It's kind of, it is, it's crazy. Aviation is one of those industries that eventually thinks of everything. And we've gotten to a point where we've thought of so much, but with every new thing comes new things to think of. Which is why they learned from all the accidents, right? That's why accidents, although they're unfortunate and people die and it's horrible, Mm -hmm. they're learning experiences. Yep. You learn from your mistakes so they don't happen again. Yep. Which is why this would most likely not ever happen again. Yep. So anyways. Thanks for listening. Yeah. Thanks again to our new Patreon members. If you want to be a Patreon member, you can go two places. You can go to Patreon and search Hard Landings Podcast, or you can go to our podcast website, which is hardlandingspodcast.com, and go to the Patreon page. We have a Patreon page, and it tells you more about the Patreon and what's included, and if you have any questions, you can let us know. Yep. And have a great week, everybody. Be safe. Be smart. Be healthy. Be wear a mask. Have a great week. We'll catch you next week. And uh, thanks again to Mike. Keep your speed up. Please like and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Hard Landings Podcast and on Twitter at Hard Landings Pod. Also, subscribe and leave us a five-star review on whatever platform you're using to listen. If you want to see photos and sources for this episode, please visit us at hardlandingspodcast.com, where you can also leave us feedback and ask questions. This episode was researched and written by Nick and Christy. Our theme song was written by Miranda and performed by all three of us, plus Leo. And our logo is by Naomi, and our social media is coordinated by Sonora. Catch you next time.